the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Fletcher. Welcome to our still new podcast, so, What the Hell is Going On? But today we're talking about what the hell is going on in Hong Kong. I don't know if people are paying close attention. I know the BBC is, but I'm not seeing as much in the American papers. But there are major, major things going on in Hong Kong that have real implications for the People's Republic of China and for us. Well, we're in the seventh week of mass protests on the weekend. Apparently, there were anywhere from 130,000 to 430,000 people on the streets of Hong Kong protesting. They uh, went past the end point of the protest and went straight to the Chinese liaison office. They threw black paint on the symbol of the Communist Party of China. They wrote messages on the wall. This, these protests are not abating. Uh, this started out as a protest over an extradition bill between Hong Kong and China. So Hong Kong is is this independent, uh, autonomous... One uh, country, two systems. Yes, one country, two systems. It's, it's, uh, it's supposed to be autonomous from China, but they wanted to have an extradition bill that would allow people, Hong Kong people, to be extradited for trial to China, which basically would be the end of Hong Kong. So this was this was really China, which has gotten in the habit of going around the world and kidnapping people that it wants to, instead of using extradition, it, it, it and in fact kidnapped a bunch of people from Hong Kong, it now wanted to formalize it by saying, no, 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 no we don't have to kidnap you anymore. See, we have an We're extradition. legalize kidnapping. That's right. It'll be great. It'll be great for you people. But the protest forced Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive, the, the sort of Beijing puppet, in Hong Kong forced Carrie Lam to not to withdraw the bill, but to suspend the bill. The demonstrators started out demanding that she withdraw the bill. They're still demanding that, but they're demanding much, much more. What's incredible, I think, for many of us who have watched this part of the world for a long time is that these demonstrations are still going on. They've got momentum and that they are so dominated by young people. Remember, Hong Kong was given back by the British to the People's Republic of China in 1997. That means that if you are 22 years old, you don't ever remember the British being in charge. And yet, of the hundreds of thousands of people that are flowing into the streets and demonstrating, a lot of them are those young people. Yes, because they grew up uh, with with their parents having lived in a free, essentially a free society, because because the British allowed a, allowed a bunch of freedoms. In fact, they started allowing these freedoms long before the Communist Party even came to power in China. Uh, the communists see Hong Kong as being sort of a British. In it's not legitimate because it's British influence, right? But they forget that, of course, communism was Marx and Engels. It was a German influence. So it's like they're you know it's not foreign influences are not all equal in the eyes of the Communist Party. But Hong Kong is. Why should people care about this that are listening to this podcast? Because Hong Kong is truly an economic miracle. It showed that Chinese people, contrary to what the Communist Party says, could embrace freedom and produce prosperity and work in a free market. And now that whole experiment, 22 years into the, to the communist takeover, is, is at risk. And it also has implications for the future of China itself and which direction China goes, right. um, no, no, how I mean, they this handle is, this. This is what we need to figure out today. And we've got a great guest. But the, one of the questions that we're, we're, we need to pose is, OK, what's Beijing going to do about these demonstrations? 
what is the world going to do? So far, the world has been like, eh, boring. What is the United States? What is the UK? What are China's neighbors going to do if China goes in wholesale and pulls a full Tiananmen, crushes these protests? a real possibility. Absolutely. Crushes these protests. Isn't that going to give Beijing and Xi Jinping, the premier of China, the license to think that he can do that kind of thing with impunity anywhere. Remember, this is a guy who has concentration camps, for heaven's sakes. You know, we're talking about 2019, and he's got full-scale concentration camps with Muslims, millions of Muslims in them, in China itself. What and is you see, he gonna, by the way, right. people in Hong Kong, if you read the stories about this, people of Hong Kong are saying he's going to do to us what he did to the Uyghurs, which are the Muslims in China. He wants to send us to re-education. He wants us, he wants to, to stamp out the influence of what makes Hong Kong special and turn us into automatons in their, in their new totalitarian uh, nightmare that they're trying to create over there. So we have a thousand questions and we have the perfect guy to answer. Uh, Gordon Chang is the author of, among other books, The Coming Collapse of China. I like him um, already. <laughs> <laughs> Mark is actually a revolutionary. He just never knew it. Uh, Chang, he li- lived in China. He lived in Hong Kong he, for almost two decades. He uh, spent a lot of time there. He was an advisor to to a law firm in China. His writings on China have appeared in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, in the National Interest, the American Conservative. He appears on Fox News. He writes for the Daily Beast. I could keep going on and on about it, but it's really fantastic to have him with us. He's basically the smartest guy out there in Hong Kong. So, Gordon. And thank you for coming and joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, good. Well, so we're we're seeing now, I think, the seventh week of protests in Hong Kong. You've seen hundreds of thousands of people in the streets protesting the communist government. You saw people showing up and actually throwing paint at the communist liaison headquarters. There, people are really angry in Hong Kong. Can you can you explain to us what the hell is going on in Hong Kong today? It started at the beginning. Yeah. Started at the beginning. Yeah. Because because for for so many people, this isn't as important. Isn't as as dramatic as as you understand it to be because you really are steeped in the history. And so just give us a thumbnail of why we are where we are. Well, people in Hong Kong are fighting for their society. They believe that this is the last stand. Now, Hong Kong was a British colony up until 1997, and then it was, as they say, handed over to China. And that was pursuant to a treaty that could give Hong Kong autonomy for 50 years, the one country, two systems formula. Now, China has, in a, in a way, abrogated the treaty, actually says the treaty no longer applies, and they've been trying to take control. What we have seen since April are very large protests over an extradition bill. Hong Kong currently extradites to 20 jurisdictions. Carrie Lam, who is the chief political officer in Hong Kong, the chief executive, as they call her, wants to expand that to include mainland China. And a lot of people, and not just pan-democracy protesters, uh, business community doesn't want this to happen because they don't believe mainland justice is justice at all. But also, this has really gone beyond that. That was what started these protests. As you say, we've now seen the seventh successive weekend of very large protests. This last weekend was actually, I think, the first that showed a disintegration of Hong Kong society. Why is that? Because you, first of all, you had a large protest over the extradition bill. Perhaps 400,000 people, maybe as few as 138,000, according to police estimates, but a lot of people. And this follows, of course, protests of a million people, two million people um, that started in, in the beginning of June. 
But you had the protest. The police tried to stop it before it got to um, the center of town. And the protesters, they say they want to be like water. You know, this is Kung Fu. Well, they are like water. This is leaderless protests. And we're seeing kids just stream out into the streets and they're willing to use violence. And they say this and they actually scrolled this on the headquarters of China. You have taught us that only violence works. And there's a long story to that. But the point is, they believe... Is that a reference to Tiananmen Square? No, this is a reference to a series of events. The first really, really big protest was June 9th where you had about a million people come out. Carrie Lam, the chief executive, was intransigent. So what happened on the following Wednesday, the 12th, were violent protests at the headquarter, at the building for the Legislative Council, which is sort of like the, you know, it's sort of like a, the legislative body for Hong Kong. After that violent protest on the Saturday following that, Carrie Lam said she was going to suspend consideration of the extradition bill. In other words, it wasn't the million people of peaceful protests of the preceding Sunday. It was the violence at the legislative headquarters, legislative council building. And so there's been a series that have taught the demonstrators that it's only going to be through the most destructive events that will actually move the Hong Kong government. So, Gordon, let me let me walk you back for a second. First of all, I have to say, you know, we all we all live through, or many of us live through the handover of, of Hong Kong from the United Kingdom back to China, and the notion of one country, two systems. In other words, one country, the People's Republic of China, Hong Kong would now be part of it, but two systems, that Hong Kong would maintain its system of government always seemed like it was going to be a fiction to me. We're not talking about more than 20 years. Was it real or was it a fiction? I think it was a fiction. I mean, that's just my view of, of the Communist Party of China. We're 22 years into this. And one of the things that have gotten people upset now is that they're saying, look, there's only, you know, there's a 50-year deal. And they're saying, we're 22 years into this. What's going to happen to us um, in 2047 when this one country, two systems expires. It um, seems pretty obvious what's going to happen well, to them, given what's happening What's happening on the mainland. So, so they're protesting. They're using violence. They wanted Carrie Lam to withdraw this extradition bill. She hasn't actually done that. She hasn't formally withdrawn it. She's said that it's no longer active. She hasn't withdrawn it. She's yeah. suspended it, is, is the term. And the protesters want it withdrawn. But, you know, that is just so you know, last month. Right now, the list of, of demands has escalated to, first of all, um, investigating the police, uh, releasing protesters, universal suffrage, independence for Hong Kong from China, you name it. So the demands have expanded to a point where this is no longer about the extradition bill. It started about the extradition bill, but it's expanded. And of course, you go back to Tiananmen Square, 1989 in China. That's the same thing. It starts out very, very small, the protesters. And as it progresses, the protesters start thinking, no, we need to change our system of government. We need to have, in effect, a revolution. So this is the same general dynamic. Is this Tiananmen Redux? Is this uh, is this what we're, we're building towards, some kind of a revolution in Hong Kong? Uh, understanding that Tiananmen didn't exactly end well for... But it was in mainland China. I mean, right. to, 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 in order for China to do what it did in Tiananmen Square would be very extreme. And I think the, the answer you know. to that is yes. And just to give a little bit of background to show the dynamic that's occurred, we in the West have been brought up on His Holiness the Dalai Lama, 
Gandhi, peaceful protest. Oh, this is really wonderful. And on June 12th, when there was the first violent protest in Hong Kong, a lot of people, including people in Washington, said, oh my gosh, the kids are going to lose support among Hong Kong people. Well, it didn't happen. Even in the more violent protests that occurred a few weeks later, people are still supporting the students um, who have been not exactly polite in the way that they have dealt it. They, they broke in, for instance, into the Legislative Council building. They defaced it. They hung a British flag. They did all sorts of stuff to really upset China and to, you would think, upset Hong Kong people. No, Hong Kong people, believing that they're fighting for their society themselves in a different way, but nonetheless, same goals, are focusing not on the destructiveness of the violent protests, they're focusing on the police, the police overreacting. So, for instance, this past Sunday, the police used tear gas again, which was something that lost the Hong Kong government's support um, some time ago. And they've now gone to rubber bullets. So we're seeing this escalation. And, what's and they're not necessarily Hong Kong police, as we were talking before that we started, that uh, a lot of these people aren't responding when they get spoken to in Cantonese because Hong Kong people speak Cantonese, uh, Beijing people speak Mandarin. And so if this you're is, this is raising a whole new dynamic. And, yeah. and this is absolutely fascinating. If you go back about three or so weeks ago on YouTube, you start seeing these videos of demonstrators, including some of the uh, pan democratic lawmakers talking or trying to talk to police officers in Hong Kong. And the police officers in a Cantonese-speaking city obviously do not understand Cantonese. And when asked, they cannot produce their Hong Kong police identification cards. That's led to the narrative in, in Hong Kong, which I'm sure is true, that either those non-Cantonese-speaking police officers, they're either from the People's Liberation Army garrison that China maintains in Hong Kong, or they're people's armed police from the mainland who've come down to reinforce the Hong Kong police. Is it possible the police... Are sympath some of the Hong Kong police are sympathetic to the protesters, and so they're using mainland police to replace those people? It could very well be. I mean, I, I, we just don't know, but this is absolutely fascinating, and it shows um, that there are things that are going on which we don't understand, but obviously Beijing is intervening. What happened also on this past Sunday was fascinating. You had a large counter-protest, obviously organized by the Hong Kong government in Beijing, Organizers said they had 300,000 people there. Hong Kong police said 103,000. Who knows? But there were a lot of people there. But what happened is uh, they brought down the Hong Kong government, uh, who obviously organized this, they brought down people from the mainland to join the crowd. Now, this is two things going on here. One of them is, of course, it's teaching the people in mainland China that there's something going on in Hong Kong. And mainland official media has been trying to shut down any mentions of what's occurring in Hong Kong for a number of reasons. But also, remember, Hong Kong people don't like people from the mainland. They don't like them when they're tourists and they come in and they support the Hong Kong economy. They certainly are not going to like them when they're coming down and they're demonstrating for Beijing. So this is creating this problem. And what we've got right now is a dynamic. We've got a dynamic where there are violent protests and the violence is encouraging the kids to come out the succeeding week. As you point out, this is the seventh weekend of successive large-scale protests. So this is going to go on for quite some time. You have the kids now saying that they're willing to die, and actually some of them have died. So the positions are hardening. What 
should we read into this um, reported discovery of explosives along with brochures uh, conveniently sounds placed? <laughs> it, yeah. do, it does yeah. sound sketchy, I have to say. But, you know, I mean, along with what you're saying about violence, there is, you know, Let's let's put it this way. It could be true. What do you believe is the truth of this reporting that two pounds of explosives along with demonstrators, brochures and a T-shirt were found by the police? And, and petrol bombs and leaflets and the rest of it. This was in a factory district in Hong Kong. I don't know what to make of this, Danny. Um, it could very well be a setup. It could very well be violent protesters because we've seen violence already. Obviously, if they started using petrol bombs uh, or explosives, that would be a dramatic escalation of it. But clearly, something's going on, and this is this is a situation which is getting worse. Also, this past Sunday, we saw in Yunlong, which is the city up in the northern part of Hong Kong, very close to the border with China, um, where you had dozens, maybe a hundred or so, thugs all dressed in the same way: white T-shirts, masks beating people on the MTR, which is their subway, mass transit railway. And, and they were trying to beat up the protesters who had left the peaceful demonstration on Hong Kong Island. So this shows a disintegration of peace and order. Um, and we're starting to see resort to violence on both sides. And this is where a breakdown in society. This is, I think, probably the first weekend where you can say there's been a breakdown in law and order, breakdown in society, breakdown in discipline on the part of the Hong Kong police, all of it occurring at the same time. I'm really concerned about what's going to happen next weekend. We want to widen the aperture a little bit and talk about China. And, but before and, we and, do. But yeah, no, no, I have a, I know, uh, I agree. Uh, <laughs> but before we do, uh, but before we do, I want to just uh, talk about next weekend, talk about where, the thing that I can't figure out is that you point out they started with their outrage about the extradition bill, and now, of course, their list of demands has broadened to no more tourists from from mainland China, you know, independence, etc. A real laundry list of demands, none of them intrinsically illegitimate for a people who want to live in freedom, but all of them, um, let's say perhaps a little bit unachievable uh, given well, the nature know. well given well, the nature yeah. of the government yeah, sure. in Beijing and that, but that's the question when we t I'm not a China person I'm I'm not an Asian there's person. no China people by the way I mean, <laughs> I mean just people who is, say they're become, China people it has become too hard to understand it's moving too fast nobody's an expert anymore. It's, it's well, it's really, it is a big challenge. And, and I know that the scholars at AEI who work on this are really, uh, are really, uh, you know, scrambling as well to keep, uh, to keep up with, to keep up with events. But what the question is, what I, well, the reason I said I wasn't a China person is I watched the Arab Spring protests. And you have all this fuel, you have all this momentum, you have all this energy and anger, and you have lists of demands. But when push comes to shove, they don't know where to go. What's their end game? What can they reasonably expect? What do you see happening? I have my crystal ball is completely cloudy, but there's a couple of things that could happen which are beyond anyone's imagination. So, for instance, you've got a political system in China right now that depends on on prosperity, continual delivery of prosperity. Chinese economy is not growing at the 6.3 percent pace that they claimed for the first half of this year. It's probably, if you look at the numbers underlying indicators for June, you can make a case for contraction. And there's a number of reasons why the Chinese economy is going to get worse this year, not better. 
So if you're dealing with a whole couple generations of, of people in the mainland who have never experienced a downturn, the political situation there can be explosive. You know, we saw the large-scale protests in Wuhan over the environment, and we don't know whether they were actually inspired by Hong Kong or not. But the one thing... This that, was when? This was about three weeks ago, wow. maybe two and a half weeks ago. Um, it was in late was it, June. Yeah. Late June. There was two days of maybe two and a half days of protests over a power plant. Um, I think the way this goes is, uh, first of all, Xi Jinping, who is the Chinese ruler, no longer has the Hong Kong portfolio on the Politburo Standing Committee, but it's his hardline policies that are being implemented. He used to have it, right? He used to have it, and it's his policies that are now being implemented. So that raises all sorts of complications for the people in Hong Kong. But the, I think the, where we're going is, first of all, People in, in Beijing don't have a clue. They don't know how to deal with a free society. They've been gumming it up, and we've seen this any number of different things. I think that they actually start to use force in a major way when one thing occurs, and that is you start to have evidence, clear evidence, that the people in Hong Kong are inspiring protests in the mainland. People in the mainland do not sympathize with the Hong Kong people. That's clear. We've known this for a very long time. They don't sympathize with them now. And so Xi Jinping's not worried about that. What he's worried about is that news about the Hong Kong protests gets into China, and it's only a specific type of news, that the Hong Kong protesters are winning. Remember, they pushed Carrie Lam around through violence. So, you know, when people in, in the mainland say, hmm, let me think about this for a moment, <laughs> I've got grievances too. There are different grievances than the people in Hong Kong, but I've got grievances. And those kids used violence down there, low-level violence, got what they wanted. So, you know, I think that, that when, when we start to see protests because, for instance, the economy's not doing well, everyone then starts getting upset about something, that's when Xi Jinping has got to crack down. Because he's caught in a vice between what you're describing there on one hand and capital flight in Hong Kong. Because like when in, in, the, that if if there's a huge crackdown, I mean, I think he, he probably saw as the protest started that yep. there was a lot of capital flight and that it, and that it probably hurt China's bottom line because China, Hong Kong is a mean, golden goose. It's a golden it's goose. Good. Like all the Chinese cities are, are second rate, like Shenzhen and Shanghai compared to Hong Kong. And so they need Hong Kong. So he's caught between it's his dilemma that if he cracks down on Hong Kong, it's it it, it can hurt China. But if he doesn't crack down on Hong Kong, it can hurt the Communist Party right. in China. So how, he's an advice. How does he get out of it? Um, he probably uh, first of all, he doesn't know how to deal with a free society. So these protests are going to get worse. And the way he gets out of it is he uses what Deng Xiaoping did, and that is massive use of force. Remember, Deng so we're heading toward another Tiananmen. <sighs> That's my sense. And it's my sense because um, he does. I, I think Xi Jinping is going to start to worry about the inspiration of the mainland. And he's going to realize that although it's horrible cracking down on Hong Kong, and although he's going to severe, accept severe costs, those costs are not going to be as bad as the loss of the Communist Party. Remember Deng Xiaoping, who was China's paramount leader in 1989. He used violence to set a lesson that the lesson to the Chinese people was that the Communist Party was willing to kill in great numbers in order to stay in power. Xi Jinping is a tough guy, and he's going to do the same thing. He's going to pick on somebody as a lesson. Now, it could be the people of Wuhan, could be the people of whatever city, but it could be Hong Kong. And 
that's why I think that we are going to see eventually a crackdown. Things are moving in the wrong direction for the Communist Party. And when Danny, when I when I said things that could be inconceivable, the people in Hong Kong could outlast the People's Republic. You know, so there is, yeah, it's unlikely, but it's possible. And right now, when there are so many things, things are so fluid. It's been, and remember, remember, this is a guy named Donald John Trump who is hammering Xi Jinping, who no longer calls him my great friend, who's got tariffs under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 that are having some effect on the Chinese economy. China's problems are its own making. They're the author of their own problems. So it's not Trump, but Trump is coming in at a bad time, causing capital flight. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we've now got a situation, I think, where a lot of bad things are occurring for Xi Jinping. Remember, you go back to 2017, everything's going his way. Come to 2018, Trump starts to hammer him. 2019 is a really bad year for, for Xi Jinping. And it, let me just go on for one thing. He has deinstitutionalized de the Communist Party, Xi Jinping. Remember, Deng Xiaoping put in all these rules, guidelines, norms to smooth out succession. If you lost a political struggle, it was terrible, but you got a, a dacha. You got a villa. You didn't lose your life. You didn't go to jail. Under Xi Jinping, you lose a political struggle, you go to jail, who knows what happens to you. Because Xi Jinping has deinstitutionalized the party, it means that he knows that if he makes a mistake, he's going to get blamed. Remember, he's taken power from everybody, which means he's also taken accountability from everybody. 2017, that's great when you get credit for everything. 2019, when things are going badly, you get all the blame. Xi Jinping deinstitutionalized the party now realizes that if he screws up Hong Kong, remember it's his policies that are being implemented, that he could end up dead. Yeah. It's interesting, Nick Eberstadt, we had him on about North Korea, and he said that uh, Kim Jong-un has done the same thing, that it used to be you'd, you'd if no matter what happened, you'd, the, the leadership was safe, and now that's not the case anymore. But that's a side, that's a side well, everybody listen to the episode with Nick Eberstadt on North Korea, because it's really good. But, but, Nick is great on, uh, on North Korea. I mean, it's just where yeah, everyone has learned from, absolutely. from Nick. Absolutely. But you you know, you know said that they're very bad at dealing with, with democracies. Do, does nobody in the Hong Kong government or the Chinese Communist Party realize that it's the lack of democracy? democracy that is causing the, these problems because when people have no democratic outlet, they turn to the streets and they turn to violence. There was one protester who was quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Sandy Chan, 29-year-old saleswoman who took a day off to join the protest. Protesting is the only way we can make our voices heard in the absence of democracy. Right. You know, I don't like giving advice to Xi Jinping, <laughs> but this is I pretty obvious. he doesn't like taking it either. Yeah, he, he won't take it. I can give it so he won't take it. But he could solve this tomorrow. He could have universal suffrage. He could force Carrie Lam out because she's really unpopular anybody. She's unpopular with everybody but herself. So he forces her out and has a, a general election, universal suffrage, no more protests. It, it's, it's gone. Yeah, but what message does he send at that point to his yeah, own people? One, he one can't country, do it, two right? systems. Well, no, 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 no. It's the message that the people in Shanghai say, well, I think I'm voting for the general party secretary myself. So, yeah, he can't he can't do it, which is the reason why I'm happy to give him good advice. But if open up a polling station, that's it. These protests are done. And and probably let some, I mean, he can probably do things short of that to let steam out. But as you say, so much rests on him. So here's a, a bigger question. I want to talk a little bit about China afterwards. Um, but let's talk about the British response. So this was, this was Anemic. a, <laughs> yeah, 
So the the world is looking at this, and these are really pivotal protests. This could be an inflection point, not just for Hong Kong, but for the People's Republic of China, and all of the trouble that the PRC is causing for all of our allies and for us in you know in the in Southeast Asia and East Asia. You know, we could go on further and further. Why so anemic? Why is the world looking at this and going eh meh? Yeah. Um, great question. I don't have an answer, um, and, and it's not just I'm not just picking on on um, London. I mean, President Trump. He was going to um, the Council General in 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 Hong Kong. Gonna, U.S. Council General was going to give a, a pretty stiff speech. He got pulled by the president, according to the reporting, and he didn't. And what we do know is he didn't give that speech. Um, I, I think that we still have a mentality that get along with the Chinese. Now, obviously, across the U.S. political spectrum, both parties, liberals and conservatives, now view China as a malign actor. But there is no agreement as to what do we do about it. And there still is an attempt, and you can see it in the administration, you can see it others, that still want to try to come to terms with China that still think it's possible. I think it's not possible for a number of reasons. So uh, I, I view this as just delusional, but you know, eventually, I think we'll get three, four months down the road. People will be much more, you know, be willing to hammer the Chinese in ways which um inconceivable. Remember, we just saw the Secretary of State have that second ministerial where he had all of these dissidents come in talking about religious freedom. And by the way, they end up in the Oval Office with the president. This is inconceivable four months ago. So four months from now, two months from now, who knows what the United States is willing to do. So I think the responses of London and others are going to become more resolute as people understand better the nature of Xi Jinping's rule, the nature of Chinese communism. So here's a, here's a potential counter narrative, and I wonder what you think. So, uh, you know, again, none of us know what Donald Trump think about thinks about any of this, uh, what he really thinks about any of this. But he has demonstrated a, a monomania with the question of the trade deficit with the Chinese and these negotiations. I, not unreasonable to suspect that one of the reasons why he didn't want our consul general in Hong Kong roiling the waters is because Mnuchin and uh, and Lighthizer, his trade representative and his treasury secretary, are in the midst of these negotiations that we keep hearing and heard from Rob Portman last week. Mark mm-hmm. are, are 90 percent done. They've been they've been ninety percent done for a while. I'm glad pregnancy doesn't work that way. But <laughs> but but. That's a possibility. I wouldn't know. That. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably right. But we mis, we misapprehend how to deal with China and specifically the Communist Party. We have this notion that they reciprocate gestures of friendship. They don't. They're communists, for God's sake. They are going to see gestures like that of, of not talking about human rights as a sign of weakness. And they are then going to press the advantage. If you want to get, for instance, a good trade agreement with China, which I think is not possible, and that's another conversation, but if you want a good trade agreement with China, what you got to do is you've got to start talking about human rights every day. You've got to start imposing global Minitsky sanctions on not just the boys and girls in Xinjiang and Tibet. You've got to start to impose them on the members of the Politburo Standing Committee, including the General Secretary of the Communist Party, whose name is Xi Jinping. You do that. You give them a reason to negotiate. You make them hurt. You drive them to the edge of extinction, and then yeah, you might you might be able to get a good trade deal. 
The best thing you could do, quite frankly, is bar them from sending their kids to college in the United States. You know, and freeze and freeze their bank accounts yeah. and and um, get Interpol, which is now not run by someone Chinese, to well, issue the former head red is, notice is, is, for in prison, the isn't Chinese. He? The former Chinese head of Interpol is now in prison in the People's Republic of China. Right, and his wife is a refugee in France. Well, so what should the I mean, beyond talking about human rights, what should the U.S. be doing? So Nancy Pelosi suggested the other day that we might revisit the Hong Kong. If they crack down, we might revisit the Hong Kong Policy Act because we have a the premise of which is our that's our law governing our relations with Hong Kong vis-a-vis -vis versus China, and that we give Hong Kong better terms than we do China because it's supposed to be a distinct entity. If the distinction between Hong Kong and China starts to disappear, then maybe we should treat Hong Kong the same way. But the problem is then you're, are we not punishing the people of Hong Kong for Beijing's ills? What's the answer there? Uh, the answer is that you, if Hong Kong is no different than China, that we cannot uh, afford to treat it differently, which I think Speaker Pelosi is absolutely right. You just would, you know, you just repeal all of the exemptions for Hong Kong, except you let everyone come in as a, you know, a refugee because they That'll are fleeing political today. persecution. <laughs> Well, maybe they can get British passports. Or yeah. Wherever. But, you yeah. know, That's what they used to have. Yeah. You facilitate them going someplace. But yeah. the point is, you know, we have, for instance... That should terrify Xi. The idea that we would take away their exemptions, that we would allow Hong Kong people to leave the, leave Hong Kong and come to the West and have a, not just a capital flight, but a brain flight. That that would end Hong Kong as we know it, wouldn't it, it for would, him? It would end Hong the Kong. The Golden Goose would be dead. It would end Hong Kong as we know it. If you believe, like I do, that we're in an existential fight with China, then while you regret the loss of one of the world's great cities, you understand that this is not us, that what's causing the problems is not America's reaction, um, but what is what Beijing is doing. You've got to remember, though, as, as a practical matter, we've got these exemptions for licensing. We will license to Hong Kong. I, I think that that's been abused. There's evidence it's been abused. So regardless of what happens on the streets of Hong Kong, we need to revisit that in order to protect, um, make sure that American technology is not leaked into China. Um, where but should it, making clear that this is what the consequence of, of a crackdown would be in advance of a crackdown as a deterrent? Shouldn't, shouldn't the administration basically be selling? If you crack down, um, if, you, if you carry out Tiananmen 2 in Hong Kong, then we will allow everyone to come in as refugees, the, the British and the United States together, that we will uh, we will remove all of the trade preferences that Hong Kong has. We'll consider kicking them out of the WTO and and you will lose the economic miracle that is Hong Kong, which is the only thing that's keeping your right. economy going right now. I agree with all the above, but you can't kick anyone out of the WTO. The point is, there's all sorts of things we should be doing with China that we're not doing. Uh, and part of these, um, we can sort of key to Hong Kong, but other things we should be doing regardless of, of what occurs in, in, in that city. There, there's just so many things because Hong Kong is being really a small part of a very important relationship that we have with China, which I believe should be less of a relationship, largely to protect American society. That's something that that uh, AEI's Derek Scissors argues a lot is that we should be we should be uh, initiating a, a separation. So let me ask you what happens. The Chinese government comes in, whether under the cover of being Hong Kong police or through their garrison or however it is, and they crush these protests. The world, as it has already signaled, goes, 
Eh, that's kind of a shame. Maybe we pull a, a, a hard-ass Nancy Pelosi, and maybe we don't. Uh, and if I'm the Chinese and I'm reading the temperature of, of the international community, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I may pay a small price, but I can probably get away with that. What does it mean for Chinese attitudes in its own region? What does it mean for Taiwan? What does it mean for the South China Sea? What does it mean for Chinese uh, extended uh, adventurism. Well, with Taiwan, we, we don't have to speculate too much because we've seen what's happened with the Hong Kong protests. As people in Taiwan have looked at that, they have moved further and further away from China. So, for instance, Tsai Ing-wen, the president of the Democratic Progressive Party, the independence-leaning political party, she wasn't even going to get renominated for a re-election. Well, she got renominated, And um, she may well win. And she very well may win. And in the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, um, which looked resurgent, um, their candidates became China skeptics overnight. So it's moved the political conversation in, in Taiwan. And it could very well get Tsai Ing-wen uh, reelected when it didn't look like she was going to do that. So, but that that's one side. Sorry, Mark. I know yeah. Mark, Mark wants to wrap up with you, but I have I just one, two fingers here, which is that's right. But on the other hand, if they perceive that they can crush Hong Kong, maybe they perceive that they can invade Taiwan. And maybe. And, and you got to remember, because Xi Jinping is now held accountable for everything because he's deinstitutionalized the Communist Party, his risk threshold is extremely low. It's much lower than we anticipate. We just sort of assume that China is going to be the same, is now the same that it was before. I don't think so. I think that China is very, very different. You have a a risk acceptant uh, leader who has very little to lose. Because if you're going to lose your life uh, anyway, a war really doesn't really add you to your losses. So there's now a, I think Xi Jinping is thinking for himself, not thinking for quote unquote China as a whole. And that really means that um, you could have that war in the South China Sea. You could do all sorts of things that we th would now think to be impossible to occur. So we are in a very fluid situation right now, especially with a China that is, I think, just forget about what we're doing with the tariffs and forget about what other countries are doing. China is very, very fragile right now. And when you add in this layer of complexity that of skepticism in, in the United States, of the measures we're taking to um, defend our society, it really means that Xi Jinping is probably in, in a world where right now he's willing to do most anything. And when China's economy is, as you say, growing less or even contracting, um, that puts him in a political precarious situation when he's you know, consolidated so much power in his own hands and strengthens people who might be his opponents within the regime. And that gives an incentive to be to strike even more nationalist tone. So he gave a really tough speech on Taiwan like six months ago, which, you know, after there had right. been a lot of rapprochement with Taiwan, all of a sudden he's, you know, saber rattling with Taiwan. Um, so talk a little bit about what's happening in China, you have said actually that you think so. China started out as a totalitarian dictatorship under Mao, and it became an authoritarian dictatorship uh, for a while. And you think that it's going back to totalitarianism. Yeah, it's, and, it's, and what does that mean? And and how what does that mean for China? What is how is that playing out? And what does that mean for us? Yeah, everyone says you know authoritarian. I think a much better label is semi-totalitarian. And if you looked at the drift of events, we're going to a system which resembles something that Mao would be familiar with. Because you have, for instance, they say 626 million surveillance cameras will be in place next year, Mark. Wow. Um, this is going to feed into what they hope 
to be able to knit these local social credit systems into a nationwide one. What are social credit systems? Okay. Social credit system is like a credit scoring system in the U.S. Credit scoring system in the U.S. looks at do you repay your bills, how much money do you earn, that type of thing. It's a financial thing. In China, um, it's much broader. It's not only do you repay your bills, it's do you jaywalk? What do you say about Xi Jinping? How do you feel about the party? You know, it's, it's basically the totality of your existence. And what they're doing with this already, even before it's gone to a nationwide system, is that they've prevented millions of people from taking trips, from getting mortgages, from sending their kids to private schools. It's just the total existence is for people. And the idea is, as they say, that the, that the, that the people who are supportive can do anything they want but those who aren't cannot take one step, which is the phrase that they use. And they are not kidding. They do not want you to leave your home if you are considered to be unfriendly to the regime. In other words, if you get a low score. So in the social credit system, you start out with this. Everyone in, the, in China starts out with a score, and it, that score is constantly updated depending on observable behaviors. So say something nice about Xi Jinping, your score will go up. Jaywalk, your score will go down. And so this is this is totalitarianism, especially because when you consider the surveillance, the um, the Great Firewall, where they completely dominate, uh, they they completely censor stuff coming in and out of China. This is just going back to totalitarian controls. It's occurring at the same time that Xi Jinping is uh, reinforcing the role of state enterprises in the society, where private businesses can't get credit or are having a harder and harder time getting credit. So. When you have the, uh, and, and foreign c companies, forget about the uncertainty caused by the quote-unquote trade war. They're being pushed out by Xi Jinping, who believes that foreign companies don't have a role in the Chinese economy, except to bring their technology and money and then to leave. So when you have the economic system going back to something that Mao would believe in, where you see these now social controls, where you see concentration camps in both uh, Xinjiang, and maybe in Tibet. Um, you see this relentless attack on faith, of all faiths throughout China. This is not quite totalitarianism, Mark, but it is getting very, very close to it. And we know that Xi Jinping, as he drives the bus in the wrong direction, probably will go back to something that was very, very reminiscent of the first years of the People's Republic. That's a very depressing way to end this podcast. Do you have any any signs of optimism or any hope for what's happening in Hong Kong and uh, uh, and the future of you know a free Chinese people? Um, yeah, the Chinese people aren't morons. They, they will get it right eventually. The hope is here. The the model that Xi Jinping has, and by the way, he he believes that his model is is sort of Maoist, but it's also Tianxia, or all under heaven. The notion that guided Chinese emperors, that China was the world's only sovereign state. Xi Jinping has been dropping these hints, some of them actually quite explicit, that he believes in Tianxia. So you go back into Chinese history. Whenever you have big Tianxia regimes, there's always been a disaster for China. It just doesn't work. And, and we know that Maoist economics don't work either. The state economics don't work. So the hope is that says Xi Jinping moves China in bad directions, that it will not be able to mount an effective challenge to the free world. So he's driving China in very, very ways that are, ways that are destructive to China. And, and this really means that in the absence of conflict, that 
the world will be much freer when we see the Chinese people change their form of government. They may not change it to a democracy right away, but this is where things are going. So long term, things are going very well. I believe the U.S. is ascendant. I believe this is the second U.S. century. China is not going to mount the challenge, but I do worry about conflict. Gordon, you're the perfect person to have here on the podcast to talk about this as all these events are unfolding for us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mark and Danny. All right. So that was a really fascinating discussion, Danny. And, you know, Hong Kong is a is a really special place. I was telling Gordon that uh, as he was leaving that uh, when I was at the White House, the the, the uh, financial secretary of Hong Kong under the British was a guy named John Copperthwaite. And he was so radically free market that he actually said government should not be allowed to keep economic statistics because they can only abuse them. And, and when I was at the White House, my colleague Bill McGurn had a bust of John Copperthwaite in his office because he was the editor of the Wall Street Journal uh, Asia. And whenever we'd have- I want to know how he had that bust made. Well, they sell them in Hong Kong. But, but, <laughs> but whenever we had to write a speech for something anti-free market like ethanol subsidies, he would very ceremoniously get up and turn the bust of John Copperthwaite to the wall because he couldn't, he couldn't bear to watch as we violated the principles of the free market. But the point is, is that Hong Kong is this incredible, incredible economic miracle that has existed now for how many, how many years since it has been an economic force for, for political freedom, for economic freedom, for prosperity. And it's in danger of being destroyed very before our eyes. What's remarkable to me is that you know, the British weren't very happy about giving back Hong Kong. There was a 99-year lease and it came up in 1997. But What's incredible to me is is how indifferent the world is about hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Hong Kong protesting about uh, about their personal freedoms. You know, we we spend enormous amounts of ink on every inane utterance of the squad in Washington and every silly tweet coming from the president. But we have what represents cumulatively millions of people protesting for freedom against the People's Republic of China, with which I think we have bipartisan consensus that we have huge problems. And everybody doesn't care. And, and you know, this is a, I mean, this is a big challenge because at the end of the day, unfortunately, I think Hong Kong could tip one way or another based on how we respond. Do you, do you think that's wrong? I don't think that's wrong. Um, I think that I think that's a miracle. That, I think that people. <laughs> I think. That, <laughs> I think. Well, let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> just, just for argument's what? sake. Exactly. What the hell? That's what we did. What we want to know? What the hell's going on? We got to disagree, right? Exactly. Um, so I think that there is an interest in Hong Kong here because. Financially, we're we're tied to Hong Kong, and our economy is very tied to Hong Kong. We do a lot of business with Hong Kong, uh, so there's a there's a uh, and it will um, if if there is. I mean, what Gordon suggested is that we could see Tiananmen too in Hong Kong, and if that happens, Hong Kong will no longer exist the way it does. That has huge strategic implications for China internally, uh, but it also has implications for our relationship with China and all the, all these things. So there's a, it, the, I agree with you that people are not paying attention enough attention to it, though it's on the news. Everybody's seeing these millions of people, but we need to get ahead of this and stop ignoring it because the, the strategic implications, it's not just what happens on the streets of Hong Kong and, oh, there might be a crackdown and democracy will die, boo-hoo. This could have implications for uh, the, the direction of China, 
could be having implications for the direction of Taiwan and whether there's a war with Taiwan at some point. It could be having directions for peace and security in the South China Sea. This this is this right. serious so, implication it, here. Right. So so basically what I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, no, I know. My God. Everyone, Everybody let's just take a moment, please. Well, Yay. Can, every once in a while the blind hog gets an acorn. <laughs> Oh my God! We have an explicit rating. Am I allowed to use that? <laughs> no, but 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 the, the problem for us is that you know it's what I said to Gordon. Trump, I think, views this as a distraction from the prize, which is a good deal with China, and in fact, this is leverage. This is a win-win formula for the United States. We can help the Hong Kong people stand up for their freedoms. We can help this one country, two systems actually be real. Plus, we can put some pressure on what is increasingly a personalist dictatorship of Xi Jinping and force them to to deal with us as a package rather than just these sort of bilateral trade issues. But I don't think Trump sees it that way. And that that's really problematic as well. But this is his weird obsession with these numbers as opposed to with principles. Well, let's let's give him a little bit more credit. No, let's uh, not. Well, let's. No, you, no, let's not. Let's. <laughs> Damn it. So look... If you think about all the issues we have going with China, we have uh, the trade issue uh, where the president is engaged in a trade war because China is stealing our intellectual property, abusing American business, abusing the the international trading system and hurting our economy. We have the issue of North Korea where we really need China to crack down on North Korea and squeeze them if we want the economic sanctions to work and have some hope for a diplomatic solution, which I think both of us think is unlikely, but it's a it's worth having a shot. So he's balancing that. And then you've got this Hong Kong situation where he's his instinct may be, well, I don't want to, I'm trying to get a trade deal, so I don't necessarily want to push up the pressure on Hong Kong. And Gordon's point, which was really interesting, is no, that's the perfect time to use Hong Kong, to start pressuring them on that by raising the human rights issue, by raising this, because it'll actually help in those negotiations. My fear is that if the president does do that, that it'll be, he'll see it not as a fundamental moral issue which the United States has to stay Donald on, Trump not seeing it as a fundamental moral issue. But that it'll okay. be a, it's a, it's a, it's a chit in the trade negotiations. Well, that's right. But that's the problem. And I think we're going to throw the Hong Kong people under the bus. And while Donald Trump may not care about the Hong Kong people, what comes next is Taiwan. What comes next is the South China Sea. What comes next is even more Chinese domination. This is, you know, this is the challenge for us is to look at this in a, I hate this word, but holistic way and understand that it's not just about leverage, although it will give us leverage. It actually is about these morals that you talk about. It was interesting because Gordon rightly pointed out, if you had said six months ago that Donald Trump gave a damn about the Uyghurs, I would have said, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. But, of course, last week, the State Department hosted this International Religious Freedom Conference, and the, the folks ended up in the office of the president, and the issue of the Uyghurs really got some emphasis. Yeah. And I'm sure it angered the Chinese enormously. If you can care about the Uyghurs, and we should absolutely care about them, you should care about Hong Kong people as well. The one thing that I never felt sure about, even when I pressed Gordon, and I still don't feel sure about it, is what these guys want. I mean, this is one of the things that drives me crazy. I, I say it again and again. One of the most important lessons of Iraq is that you really know what you want. 
and that you act to get it after you achieve your initial goals. We don't see that in Hong Kong. And I really, really worry that we are not, that what we're going to see is a protest movement that doesn't have an end game. But it's a, both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength. Gordon described it as a leaderless protest, right? That they're like water. And part of that is it's not, you know, the Chinese can't say this is foreign influences. This is like a cabal of American influence CIA operatives doing this stuff. This is a genuine grassroots movement that's happening because young people, who, as you say, who never even experienced freedom under the British are, are, are protesting at that. But the problem with leaderless protests is there's no leader to come up with it with a line. So if you look at the successful protest movements in history, you look at like the solidarity movement in Poland, to use a different example, different part of the world, Lech Wałęsa was the leader of that. They had clear leaders, sat down with the with the regime, negotiated the roundtable agreement and had and had some kind of an outcome. If you look at most successful protest movements, they have leaders and they have specific goals and they and they just use moral force in order to get them. My worry is in Hong Kong, it sounds from what Gordon tells us, is that there really is no leader of this of this movement. There's no Lech Wałęsa. Um, and that is a problem because this was, if you keep in mind, when Tiananmen Square happened, that was just after Lech Wałęsa and the Polish, uh, the Polish government overthrew communism and their country started to bring, bring it down. Um, and you were seeing Glasnost and Perestroika and all the all the liberation of Eastern Europe and the communist regime said, yeah, not in our country. And, and they rolled... 10,000 to 15,000 people over with tanks and pulverized them and poured them down the drains in the in the streets of Tiananmen Square. If we start seeing that in Hong Kong, I, I don't think the sure. world's going to be I'm not sure if the world's going to be able to ignore it this way because back sure. then there was no internet, there was no YouTube. If there had been YouTube yeah, in Tiananmen Square, tank guy. there was Tank Guy at there Tiananmen was tank Square guy. who was an international icon. Yep. And and the reality is that China got to go back to status quo ante. I am not persuaded by Gordon's optimism that you sort of coaxed out of him at the end <laughs> that yeah, that that China's days are numbered. The problem I have is that the problem I have is it always comes down to the same thing. This administration in Washington right now is not guided by a set of principles. It's guided by a set of tactics uh, that are all about satisfying the latest whim. If in fact it was guided by a set of principles, we would know what to do about Hong Kong right now. And in fact, the administration doesn't. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for a speech. I'm waiting for our consul general to be allowed to give a talk. And I'm waiting for something from Mike Pompeo. I'm waiting for something from John Bolton. And I suspect that I shouldn't hold my breath. Well, I think uh, I, I'm with you. I want to hear from them. So let's there you leave go. Let's leave it at that. Bye, Thanks everybody. For listening. Our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.